Deezer Originals Trailblazers Xavier Durone Hello, my name is Eddie Temple-Morris and welcome to another episode of Trailblazers, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of some of dance music's most dazzling DJs. And in these strange times of isolation and separation, it falls to me to introduce each episode of the new season. And this episode sees Nick and I talk to Xavier Doronet from Justice in October 2019. This was the first episode recorded overseas and this was an exciting thing for Nick and I to be in Paris in the very vibey surroundings of Justice record label Because Music. And this was, of course, recorded before COVID-19, so the devastating effect on the live music scene of which Justice are such a vibrant part was not discussed. But lots was. Let's dive in. Trailblazers. Our guest is the youngest trailblazer Uh we have ever spoken to. He is part of an electronic duo that defined the noughties and who have influenced as many producers of dance music as their compatriots and management stablemates Daft Punk. They changed the game by breaking rules in a similar way that Prince did when he made Kiss and they united ravers and rockers in a way not seen since The Prodigy, but they did it with Gallic style and panache. Incredibly, the first thing they ever did remains one of the greatest remixes ever done. Don't tell me you've never thrown your hands in the air and shouted, we are your friends. Their show at a sold out Madison Square Garden in New York City still ranks as one of the greatest musical spectacles of my life from justice Xavier de René très bienvenue Bonjour. A, tra- a trailblazer. Bonjour, Eddie. Bonjour, Nick. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice to have you here, man. Lovely to see you again and, and, yeah. and on, on your home turf. Exactly. It's my neighborhood here. Really? Yeah, yeah. I've been living here like for 20 years. And I must say, it's a very nice part of, of Paris, isn't it? There's, there's beautiful cafes and... Well, it's not the nicest part of Paris, oh, right. but, I... but I, like, <laughs> I love it. And I think that's the case for like, everybody that lives here. Yeah. It's like, I think it's one of the worst uh, area of Paris, actually. Is it? Oh, but, okay. But somehow when you like, <laughs> spend a lot like of it. time here, like, <laughs> you stay here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, it, what, what is the nicest area in Paris then? Is it the bit by the, the Pompidou Centre, the, the old Jewish quarter? What's it? Is like, it Le Marais? Yeah, is it? Le Marais is nice. Uh, like, and all my friends make fun of me for that. But if I, if I could, I would go and live next to Saint-Germain-des-Prés or something like this, yeah. where all the tourists and the bourgeois <laughs> are, you know? Why? <laughs> because I love it. <laughs> because the, the grandeur of it. No, but I used to go to uh, university there. Oh, okay. And, mm. uh, and it's so nice and there are girls on the streets and, uh, yeah. and shops. And it's, it's like the, the postcard Paris to me. Yes. And, uh, and all like the tourists like buying like expensive watches in the world can't <laughs> make me dislike it. It's, it's just nice, you know. <laughs> but yeah. it's not cool. It's not cool to say you want to live there. Yeah. And, and so are you a Parisian? No, I like like most Parisians, I'm a, a suburban, oh, okay. a suburbaner. How do you yeah. say that? Suburban, yeah, suburbanite. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, um, so I've done the big the, the big intro, and it's traditional that Nick mm. then leads in with the first question before we before we backtrack into your life. Exactly, exactly. So fantastic to be here, and thank you, you know, for for making the time to to join us. It's, it's brilliant to have you here. Um, I was wondering. Just what is the typical? What is a typical day like for you at the moment? 
I'm wondering, before you joined us here to do this recording this evening, were you in the studio or were you talking about other stuff outside of music? Or I just wondered, yeah, what, what, what's daily life like for you right now? In- well, today I worked, so I was in the studio. Ah, right. But it's not a typical day. Uh, it, it depends, like, and I think that's the luxury of uh, being in a band. Yeah. And being in a band such as ours mm. is that we uh, we have like long periods where we work. Then there's gonna be long periods where we don't work and do like okay. plenty of other things. Uh-huh. Sometimes we're on tour. Sometimes we're in the studio. But we we have kind of a relaxed work routine. Okay. And, uh, what, talk me through what is your what it, what would be a typical work routine when you are in sort of recording phase? Well, when we record, it's like uh, we always like start slowly and relax. And of course, like the last the last six months of making an album is a nightmare of not sleeping and counting counting every hour we have and we can use to to be efficient. Yeah, uh, but that's usually just. It's like, okay, two years every like five or six years. So mm. it's, it's kind of okay. Yeah. And then uh, we replace this routine by the, the tour routine, yes. which is even worse. Hmm. <laughs> so like, uh, like the tour preparation, generally it's like, I don't know, eight to 10 months right. of, of like uh, working every day on both like uh, rehearsing, preparing the music, working on the scenography. And, uh, and for example, on the last tour, like the three last weeks before the first show, yeah, I was sleeping an average of like twenty minutes a night, and and Whoa, I don't know how my man. like now I think about it and I don't know how it was possible. Like we were like in a, our first gig was in Mexico and we had like a, we rented a warehouse for one week before the first show to set up everything and continue rehearsing. Right, and there was like a, a flight case. Yeah. With four minutes, and that 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 was my bed, like for one one week. Coffin. Wow, yeah, that exactly. Like I was sleeping on that case, and we we're just take, taking turns. So I was going in the case like for twenty minutes. Then it was like the sound guy. Oh then it God. was like the. That is so intense, I, and that was. Did you say that was before you started at all? Yeah. yeah. And was that just because of overwork, or are you a warrior? You know, was that through anxiety? No, I, I think it's because the. Like my my theory about deadlines, and I think it works pretty much the same for everyone, is that if you have like 10 months to make a project, you will need like 10 months and two weeks. You know what I mean? It's always the same. (laughs) It's always like the N plus one thing. So so it's always the same. You know, you just like plan because you know you have this amount of time. And of course, you are always like two or three weeks late. And because you can't be late, you have to compress like three weeks into like, I don't know, five days. And this is how you end up like sleeping 20, 20 so, minutes a day. Something I've experienced over the years in the, the making of albums, sometimes the very best stuff comes really near the end. Have you, have you always, found... Always, always. Right, yeah, you no. found the same, yeah? And same thing, like I, I don't really know if it's actually the best stuff or if it's the stuff you like the more because it comes like uh, spontaneously. Yes. At the moment, you are like almost dying of like... Uh, listening to the same stuff for like two years. Yep. And uh, so to you, it sounds like a stroke of genius. But but to the people, I think we don't know, it's maybe not always the best. But but for us, we, we always feel we make the best tracks at the end of the... 
Yeah, I forgot the I've seen this with with multiple really successful acts actually that some great stuff comes right under the wire, you know, and you'll know when when the deadline is, but then you probably might say to your record label, "Ah, this sample, do you think this could be clearable? But this is like three days before you're supposed to hand in your record or something. And, yeah, and I think and that I think that goes on quite a bit with 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 great artists. Yeah, and and also there's there's that thing which brings us to the very first Trailblazers that we did uh-huh. with Renart van der Papelera yes, from R and S Records. Yeah. He always says the best shit happens between five and six a.m. <laughs> it's like you know when you're at your you know you're in that zone where you, you you haven't slept for ages and you're super I guess suggestible and and I think that maybe you're in a zone that's kind of more creative because you're you're more open you know when you've had so little sleep so yeah. good shit can happen right yeah yeah like I think in my case like I'm useless past like four a.m. and oh, now right. and now we know it so now we stop working like. At, at some point, we notice that anyway, you become useless also because we uh, make our records uh, on our own, including the mixing. Oh, yeah. Like when you mix a record and it's been like uh, 10 hours, you've been like trying to mix a song, then you become crazy. Mm. <laughs> so now we know that when, like, when it's dinner time, you have to stop. It depends on what when you write. It can happen at night that you find good stuff. Mm. But for the more, more technical stuff, now we know that past a certain hour, we need to stop. Mm, that's rare to both produce and mix mm-hmm. records. I mean, I, from personal experience, Tom, who is, um, I'm in a band called Losers, and when, I, and when we make records, Tom goes crazy if he has to mix stuff. Mm. I mean, he's really good at it, but he hates doing it. And most people do hand it over to, to you know, because mixing is a different art to, to, to production, but it's, it's very rare that you do it. How, how come that happens? Um, why has that been, always been the case? It's just because the um, most records we like, uh, especially in electronic music, um, how can I put that together? Like we noticed that the the electronic records that age the best f- to our ears are the ones that sounds a bit that sound a bit uh, peculiar. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, <laughs> They're never the ones that, that that sound the biggest. You know what I mean? Mm. Or the cleanest. Yes, and uh, and same goes with uh, rock and roll. You know, like all the all the rock records I like, like the one I still love in terms of like production and everything. They sound amazing, but they don't they don't sound good. You know what I mean? They're, they, they're they, dirty. Yeah, and, yeah, they're yeah. not they're not perfect. <laughs> yeah, and the imperfections are part of the beauty of those records. Yeah. It's that kind of thing, maybe. Yeah, it's like it's a very cliche thing, but it's true, and I think it, there's a reason why it's a cliche. Yeah, man. And uh, and we we there's a peculiarity that I feel only us can bring to our own music. Right. And we're not the best mixers. Like for example, I would be. Uh, I wouldn't mix like the record for somebody else, mm-hmm. mm. but for our music, we feel it's important that we do it ourselves. And uh, and so far so good. Like like when I listen back to the albums we put out, they are all like a bit quirky. Yeah. And and we like them like this. You know what I mean? And we're happy that they don't sound like what sounded like big in clubs at the moment. You've always broken rules. You know, in, in production. That's what I loved about Justice. You know, and that's why I drew the parallel between you and Kiss by Prince. When Prince made Kiss, that overloaded snare, that, you know, that sound, like everyone said, that's crazy. You can't do that. That's an overloaded snare. You're insane, you know, releasing this. But that's that wrongness, that sort of dirt, the imperfection was what made it so great. 
Yeah, but for like you say, we break the rule, but for us, it's a rule, <laughs> and, 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 it, and it seems pretty clear when you look back at things that like the best records are like uh, they they have something peculiar, you know. At, and Kiss is a great example because like all the all the the records from this era, I love them because they sound a bit uh, unmixed in a way. They sound like everything is like has been put flat on a table mm. on the desk. And of course, like it might not be the case, but there's a, like something like very dry about them and uh, very like uh, unfinished that I, that I really love. Like, and and even when I talk about like the 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 Prince albums of this era and the first ones, or, or when people ask me, okay, what what period of Prince do you like? I always say I like the the de- demo Prince, you know, <laughs> like all the songs he makes, where, where you can feel like he's making everything on his own. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the mixing is a bit like uh, very not flat but like dry and I lo- I love it. I could carry on this conversation right here for for hours, but I, what I want to do is to wind it back and let's come back to, to here. So I want to take us back right to where it began, to your suburb mm-hmm. of Paris, to where you were growing up, and you know, did you have a a musical childhood? What was your first kind of musical awakening, uh, if I can ask that? Well, my uh, my parents, I think they they used to own like maybe four records, so it didn't <laughs> come from them. Uh, a big part of it is the of my musical uh, education. It like, comes from TV uh, when I was young, and uh, and like maybe when I was like twenty years old, I realized how important it was. Like all those like uh, TV themes from mm. like a series. Mm. Uh, like all the American series, like for example, like uh, Silver Spoons or all this kind of stuff that sound a lot like just like uh, 70s soft rock uh, got really like uh, uh, printed in my uh, in my brain and it's the same for Gaspard and also like all the Japanese uh, anime uh, we used to watch and especially one and I, I, I put one of the tracks in uh, my playlist it's, uh, it's called Cobra And Mm -hmm. Cobra was like uh, designed after Jean-Paul Belmondo. Mm. And uh, and so we were watching this when we were like maybe like six, eight years old. And uh, and the music we make, it sounds like Cobra, you know, from from this period. And even our taste in like uh, visuals, like even in girls, I might say, because like everything looks perfect in this uh, in this anime, like the styles of the guys, like the way they were talking. And it's and it's crazy. Like this is why now, as a parent, I pay a lot of attention to what my daughter is like watching or listening to, mm-hmm. because I know that at this age you get like so influenced and it stays with you f- forever. Right. Yeah. So would now be a time? Should we should we listen to to uh, Cobra now? Yeah, we can. Like it's a very short track. Uh, yeah, let's get a sense of this because so, so, this is. So who's the artist and what, what's? It's like, I don't know, I would be unable to say, I think it's some Japanese guy. Some you know? Japanese guy. Yeah. <laughs> but and it will make sense for you when you listen to it, All right. like oh. how close it is to our music. So it's from an anime TV show that yeah. you watched when you were six. Yeah. <laughs> let's, All right. let's listen. Let's check it out. Trailblazers. Xavier Derone.
is hilarious to me because that is <laughs> that is the blueprint that is, that is just like a blueprint it's so close isn't it yeah like but it's fun because it took us a lot of time to realize that so many things were coming from our childhood yeah and that, that uh, really did imprint on you didn't it that's crazy mm-hmm. how how inspirational that turned out, out to be yeah but even visually like 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 i remember like an episode of this anime Well, like to open like a secret gate, he has to play a Serge Gainsbourg track on a, on a, on an organ that makes like a glow and lightning when he presses the touches and everything. Mm. And he's playing like a initials BB, I think. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you can't fight against like uh, the childhood memories and everything. It's like uh, yeah. So did you have, you, you say your, your parents weren't really big into music, so you didn't have a lot of, you weren't surrounded by music, it came from, it came from outside of your home. This and also from my uh, older brother, I have a brother that is like seven years old, older than me, yeah. mm. and, uh, and he played a big role too, because uh, he was listening to um, like punk rock and uh, rap at the time. Mm. And uh, all sorts of like uh, alternative things. He was like anti, you know, it was, uh, so it was like the late 80s. And I think at the time, like the teenagers uh, had a very big affirmation by the music they were listening to. Mm. So my, my brother was really like into all these kind of like uh, non-mainstream things. Right. So I grew up like uh, both on like the most mainstream things that were like TV Uh-huh. And MTV, and also like the things that he was like feeding me uh, to, mm. and uh, and for example, I was listening to to uh, like uh, rap from the age of like maybe nine years old, and that was because of him, right? And 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 like uh, listening to rap uh, was a very big part also of uh, my musical education. That's a very French thing, isn't it? French youth have always really been into that. Uh, expression of urban folk music from America, you know, that like rap music and, and, and taking that ball and run with it very well. Mm. Was the, w- which kind of rap records were you listening to? So it was both uh, French rap yes. and uh, like a West Coast rap. Like right. I was really into like G-Funk. Yeah. yeah, Warren G or whatever. Uh, yeah, like, like the more like a gangster, the better really? for me. So that's okay. why I was not listening, for example, to New York rap. Okay. Like for, like, for example, I've never listened to a Tribe Called Quest in my life. Right. And I, I know the classics and I, with the, the time I can like uh, enjoy them. But I've always been more into like the club rap, what I call club rap. And, right. uh, and, and the first CD I bought was uh, uh, Doggy Style. Right, right, right. And, and to this day, it's, it's still one of my favorite records. Uh, Ever. And in terms of French rap, was MC Solar too overground for you? Were you like, you know, more subterranean than that? Well, it's that simple. MC Solar is like a tribe called Quest. Yeah, right. It's I like gotcha. some sort of like conscious, uh, wise, like rap of wisdom, you know yeah. what I mean? Mm. Like maybe because I was like a, a kid in like, in a, like, kind of like okay suburb yeah i was really into like uh, all i wanted to hear and see was like guys with like guns and talking about drugs and uh, <laughs> you wanted and the thug, <laughs> it was the thuggish the thug end of rap that you liked yeah but like 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 the reason why i bought like a doggy style as a first album it's because that was like what's my name on the radio so that was a huge hit yeah 
but at the time he was he, he was just like released from prison for homicide <laughs> and that's fascinating and i think it was it was probably part of like the marketing plan of the record company yeah <laughs> To make sure everybody knew about it. Okay, I can just imagine them sitting around the table, right? So, so when's the homicide scheduled for? Okay, that's good. all right. And then he should be released by when? Sorry, can we get a lawyer on the phone to? T- <laughs> no, but that's, that's fascinating when you're a kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you want like some sort of like subversion or things that are unusual to you? Yes. And the attitude and everything was like was still amazing. All right. And well, is there, well, is there a record from yeah. from that period that you wanna that you wanna play for us? Yeah, like on, on the stick, I put like a G fuck intro uh-huh. of a doggy style. So it's it's the second track, but the first track is just him in a bathtub. So it's the first moment of music gotcha. in the record. And uh, I mean, I, I could have picked like any track of this of this album. Yeah, but this one I, I chose because the. Um, uh, like most songs of Doggy Style, it's like it's a mashup between like two or three songs of uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, and uh, and because of this record, it brought me to listen to Funkadelic and Parliament. Trailblazers, Xavier Derone. Definitely something in the bass line there going on that, that was influential to you. And, and like you say, going on to Parliament and Funkadelic, you know, because that, that, that became a really signature part of the Justice sound was that kind of that really funked bass. You know? it's, it sounds like it, it, it opened a, a door for you, that, that record. How old were you when, when you bought your first... So you bought this on CD, I guess, did yeah, you? Yeah, I bought a CD and it yeah. was like in 1992, I guess. So I was 10 years old. 10 years old, yeah. okay. And then so the, the doors open and, and, and then, yeah, you, for the first time you encounter Funkadelic and George Clinton, etc., all that kind of stuff, is that right? Yeah, from, from this and because of my brother, I understand that people are making records by taking part of other records. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, and also because at that, this time there was no internet, it was such a joy when you were like buying a record and you were recognizing something that you've heard in another record. It was like you found like a, it was like a, a treasure, you know. So yeah. I started like buying like those like uh, psychedelic albums, but I didn't have like um, I'm using English pocket money when I was a kid. Yeah. Right. So it was very rare that I, w- I would go and buy uh, buy records, CDs, I would say, and uh, and because. You couldn't like listen to them before you were buying them, mm. like the CDs. When you were buying one, uh, you had to stick with it, and even if you didn't <laughs> like it, you had like to get into it. You did, yeah. It's an interesting memory, of course, which is you know completely different way of consuming music to what we've got now. Where now it just yeah, thirty seconds, twenty seconds, yeah, no, next, no financial investment. But yes, if you'd saved up your pocket money 
back when I was a kid, if you'd saved it up to buy a record, yeah, you weren't just moving on to something else after 30 seconds. You were you going, I'm... You I'm, love that record. You I'm play gonna, it again yeah, and again and, and again and, and like again. And you said, and even if they were tracks that you weren't so keen on, you would kind of... You were sort of forced to to get to know it and love it because yeah. you didn't have a, a plethora of records around necessarily that you'd that you know that you 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 purchased because you know yeah. for obvious reasons. So true. But but I had some good because like the so the first Funkadelic album I bought was um, Uncle Jam Wants You, mm. right? Uh, because it was cheaper. That was the reason. Because there's like less songs on it. <laughs> it was not the price of a full record. I think there's only like. I can't remember if that's six or eight songs on it. Uh, and I didn't like it. So I bought it and I was very disappointed because I was hoping like to find some sort of like a Snoop uh, Dr. Dre flavors. Mm. And this is, for most part of it, actually a rock record. Mm. Yeah. Like the two first tracks are like kind of like disco funk. But that's the thing I didn't know is that if I... like. Parliament was more like on the like the funk side of it, and and funkadelic is like f mostly like a prog rock band, like psychedelic rock band for me. Uh, but the good thing is that I didn't like it, but I had it, and it was my uh, my CD, so I, I I I played it over and over. And now my favorite funkadelic tracks are like the most like rock tracks. You know what I mean? Like the. <laughs> yeah. Like, for example, on this album, my, my two favorite songs are the ballad at the end. That's called uh, Holy Wants to Go to California. Yeah. And, uh, and one that's called Field Maneuver that I, I put on the, on the, on the playlist. Uh, and, and sometimes I wish, like even today, I love like being able to listen to whatever I want to just by like uh, taking my phone and typing a name, mm. like al almost everything. Uh, but I wish I was like trapped with also some music and I didn't have a choice but like to go and listen to it over and over mm. until I find something I can hang on to, you know. I, of course, like sometimes I would buy a shit record too and mm. and it, it, it wouldn't work. But but I feel that we don't, we tend not to give a chance to records that are not immediate. And for me, one of the best quality uh, that you can find in music or in art in general is that things that are like a bit uh, opaque at the beginning mm. and that you finally like manage like to penetrate into mm -hmm. and when you do and when it works it's like it's the best you know yeah. and, and yeah. the world of today gives us less opportunities of, of doing that you reminded me of my my favorite album my, my desert island album which is by steely dan and you know opaque it, it takes a while to get into it like mm. what's your i have this this notion of a desert island record and i want to ask you what yours is this is this means that if you had to listen to only one album for the rest of your life if you're stuck on a desert island with only one one album what would that be it's a really tough question but and, and i want to ask nick i want to ask you the same thing my god I mean, it's, fun. it's, so fun. Tough. it's fun because the uh, Steely Dan song almost made it into my... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Ah. Which one? A uh, Peg, of course. Oh, Peg. Oh, oh, you say, of course. Yeah, I'm more of an Asia man, you see. So <laughs> my, my album is Asia. So, you know, after that. And, uh, yeah. and a Desert Island record, I think I would, I would put uh, Electric Warrior by uh, T-Rex. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Great record. I, I don't know. I'm, give me some more time to think about that. That's a really <laughs> pressured question. Should, why, why, tell you what, why don't I start to chew on that a little bit? Should we have a listen to the the track that you that you that you referenced just then? So this was so you went from from the Snoop Dogg record in, yeah. and what what was the one it was that, a Funkadelic it's a, album it's track? A field maneuver from uh, Funkadelic. Trailblazers, Xavier Derone. It's almost like dance music doing Led Zeppelin, that isn't it? It's like, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah. So well, so now you're are you you're in your twelve thirteen this yeah, kind of zone? Like this, yeah. And has has the penny dropped for you yet that you want to be in music, that you want to create music, and you want to be involved, or, or does, does that come a little bit later when you're this kind of age? Are you listening to these records, but you're thinking, yeah, but I'd still kind of like to be a fireman or a train driver or, or whatever? No, like that, like the the wish of making music has has come like very late for us. Really? Yeah, maybe around the age of like twenty two, something like 22, this. Twenty two. Right. I thought that was the case. Right. So, so I'm interested to know. You were absorbing music through your brother and through a TV and, I guess, radio. Um, were you involved in music in a real way at any stage in your childhood? Like, did you play an instrument? Did your parents get you to play the keyboard or the piano or the guitar or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, like, 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 uh, like most, like... Uh nerds of our time mm. and I, I'm talking in the name of Gaspar too because we had the, the same experience uh, we were like playing in like uh, high school bands uh, so I learned to play like the guitar and the bass mm. and I was I was playing in these sorts of like bands because at the time everybody wanted to play the guitar Yeah. so you would like meet in the weekend with like five other guys Playing the guitar, there would be like no drummer or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what did Gaspar play? And he played the drums actually, right? And uh, a bit of keyboard, but he's been traumatized by his like uh, piano lessons when he was a kid. <laughs> oh, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and we were doing like stuff. Like I was playing music uh, when I was uh, learning the guitar. Not that I liked necessarily, but that yeah. was interesting to play when you are learning how to play the guitar. Right. So we were doing covers of like, I don't know, like um, Joe Satriani. Yeah. Like I knew how to play a surfing with the alien, both like the <laughs> solo part and the rhythmic part, uh, but also stuff like like metal and everything. And, uh, and but that's the thing also, also for the kids of our time, like you were listening to rap, but we were also listening like to uh, to like hard rock and rock. And uh, like Nirvana was so big that it was impossible to escape it mm. and and still to this day I like uh, I like Nirvana reasonably uh, while listening to like Rage Against the Machine of course like all these kind of uh -huh. things and, and when you say I'm interested to know when you say metal what does what what do you what does a French suburban kid mean by metal like Slayer Cannibal Corpse and oh, all these kind of things proper metal okay yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right yeah while listening to that too it was so fascinating like 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 
this is alien music, you know, at, at the time. Yeah. I think like you couldn't find stranger music than this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so let's say when you were 16, 17, 18, this kind of zone, um, what did you think you might do with your life if the penny hadn't dropped that it was music? In an alternate universe, what would you have ended up doing? So when I was like uh, 15 or 16, I wanted to become uh, anesthetist. Anesthetist? That, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah, like the people who like make people sleep before operation. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, but no, Gosh. but just just because like my father was working in a hospital. Okay. And so I knew I had like a, a good source. So my father who told me, like those guys, they work like... Uh, very limited amount of hours every week yep. because it's a stressful job sure. yeah. and you have like a good paycheck and uh, mm. so I've always been like looking for like a good ratio between like the the time you spend doing something and the return life work <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's quite interesting then I wanted to become like a I don't know how you say in English fortune teller Really? Yeah, like that's it, medium. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Really? Wow. Yeah. Well, and why, how come? Are you particularly sensitive and empathic? And Yeah, because I had like some skills of that. Um, do, you, do you still have some, some fortune telling skills? No, it's been a long time. If you I looked at like my practiced. palm now, would you be able to? <laughs> yes, you will. No, no it's, it's like it could be a long story, but okay. like. Interesting, though. No? But yeah. I had like it, had like, um, and I knew that being a good fortune teller was also being able like to listen to people. Yes. And being able to talk to them. You don't go to the fortune teller to know what's going to happen, but just to be like uh, reassured about the options you have. Right. It's a bit like therapy. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. well, that's why I said, are oh, you a very empathic person? You know. I, I, I hope I am. I yeah. hope. Yeah. And, uh, and then. Uh, I was about like after the high school I was about to go to a law university right and my brother who knew uh, because he had made the law university he knew it wasn't for me mm -hmm. so he put me on a, I don't know the word in English uh, subscribing like to like one of the big school of uh, art in Paris uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, but you had to there was a contest like an entry contest oh, yeah. uh, before an applying an, an exam, exam. Yeah. yeah an exam And uh, and he got me there, and uh, and I passed the exam. So I moved from my parents when I was 16 years old to go and live in Paris and go to the art school. Right. Oh, okay. And until until like the last year of my university, this is when I met Gaspard and we started making music together. Mm. I thought I would become a graphic designer. Right. Got it. Got and, it. and Gaspard as well was a was exactly a, the same. Yeah. Yeah. And. Was he from a similar neighborhood to you as well? Were you from a similar area? Or? No, he was closer to Paris yeah. in like, uh, like a very nice uh, suburb, like a <laughs> posh suburb. Right, okay. So, so tell me, were you, was this around the zone that you first went out to clubs and, it, and absorbed the power of electronic music when you were a student? You know, you were maybe like 18, 19-ish. Am I right? Were you at But we, ne we never really went into clubs with Gaspard. And, oh. uh, and like, we were not interested in electronic music. Right. At all. Like, what we liked with the electronic instruments is that we were able like, to make a record from A to Z mm. uh, in a bedroom. Right. But the electronic music was not like a, something that really interested us. 
so you you weren't involved in DJ culture and and, no, and all of that. Not no, at all. you didn't have a big awakening in, into electronic music. You were just mm. thought you were a rocker. Yeah, but because we were too late, like the the people who had that were people that were adults in the nineties, and yeah. we went to raves and stuff like this. Mm. But we were just after that, and uh, so we were listening to electronic music because there were some hits on MTV. Like the, the first like vinyl I bought when I was like, because I had a turntable was a Smack My Bitch Up. Was it? <laughs> yeah, wow, okay. which is kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. But it was because it was a hit. Yes. And, and for us, and because Gaspard was really into like uh, the Prodigy too, yeah. it, it was not because it was electronic music, but just because it was like a big, it was a hit and the music was good. So we didn't really think about, oh, what is this? Uh, like, what does it represent? Right, right, We right. loved, like, the, the, the way the guys looked. Yeah. We loved the music. Like, the video was great. Yeah. So you buy and you just listen to that. And I guess know? you love, I guess that you love the, the fact that it was, even unconsciously, love the fact that it's the, the grey area between dance music and rock music. It's, it's both and neither, which kind of, you know, it was provided you with a blueprint in a way. I don't really know because because to me there's not so many successful uh, blends between rock and electronic music. Mm. Uh, uh, like they happen to be one of them, but I don't know if it was what was happening in in our brain. You know, like like uh, because uh, like there's been like a very big wave of like electro rock music uh, after that, mm-hmm. and most of them, uh, most of it, I, I, we don't like it. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think it was just good. And, yeah. and that was enough when you were a kid to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good with attitude. I, I should say, I mentioned to Liam yesterday that I was coming over to do this. He did say, pass on, pass on his regards. So yeah, please talk about him. I will. I'll pass that on as well. <laughs> so you're now at art college. You're not into electronic music. Um, you've met Gaspar. Uh, what was the point at which you entered, you know, music. Was was it, I mean, the legend is that you entered the remix competition that Simeon, who were my chums, who I was, you know, championing on, on XFM at the time, they had this remix competition for their track, Never Be Alone. And it was, it was the early days of, it was something that we, you know, that we kind of helped pioneer together. Like, our people like us, we, we were encouraging people at home to do homemade mashups and, and remixes and stuff and putting, you know, when I had my first compilation album, I did a remix competition, put, put separates up online. It was like, it was the very early days of that. Was, and was that your first, was that your very first foray into making music or had you make, made music with Gaspar in some way before then? Uh, no, when I made Gaspar, like we, we were like um, making music on uh, like separately like we had like some equipment and we were trying things, but this track is like the, I can't remember if it's the first one or the second one we made uh, together hmm. uh, because we made two tracks at the same time. There right. was one that we made for, like we had some friends that were doing a compilation. So we were making one for them uh-huh. and we made this, this other one in, uh, in parallel. Uh, but yeah, it's like the first finished track we, we've, we've made. Um, and no, like I, I was like, uh, I had like this equipment, like it was not a, a lot of things where I had like, uh, uh, Akai sampler, uh, a few, like, um, how do you call that? 
uh, uh, expanders, you know, yeah. like small machines that have like uh, sounds in it, yeah. a manual sequencer, and we had no computer. And, uh, and I bought this because I liked uh, being surrounded by these machines. Yeah. I was living in a flat in Paris and I liked just to see them and just to be able like, to, to <laughs> tweak them a bit. And, uh, and same thing, Gaspard had like a four tape, like a four tracks recorder and a right. few synthesizers. And we put everything together, but with, with close to no um, club uh, influence. Uh, and uh, like there was two club things that we both liked. Uh, there was uh, Le Rhythme Digital, like the oh, Jacques Leconte. Uh, Stuart, dear Wall, Stuart, yeah. yeah. Wall of Sound, right? Uh, yeah. That, he was, yeah, Wall of Sound, that's right, yeah. Like Dark Dancer. Uh, yeah, brilliant. was like an amazing record to us. And, uh, and there was this other thing that it's a French guy that's called Alan Brax. I'm, I'm, oh, seeing, yeah. a, I'm seeing a poster Fred, of Stardust. Yeah, as in Fred Falcon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant producer. Yeah, well, he did, he's did, done some of my favorite. And, one of my uh, favorite remixes, actually. I think in like 1999 or 2000, he made a track with Fred Folk that's called the Intro. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and when I heard this track, I, I really felt maybe for the first time that there was something to be made with electronic music or with dance music in the sense that, unlike the Prodigy, it's not structured like a like a radio track. You know, it's one loop and it's like a it's, he just like rinses the loop from yeah. the beginning to the end, but it was still very like uh, emotional and a bit like elegant, but uh, dark at the same time. Mm. And uh, and uh, like I, I put it on my playlist because like to this day for both of us, it's like probably the best uh, proper dance music track that has ever been made in France. You know, or for example, like for us. Great. All right, let's Let, let's, yeah, let's uh, give it a listen right now. Trailblazers, Xavier Derone. Fantastic record, isn't it? It is. It was on Roulet, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. That no, one. it was on the. Was it not on Vulture? Vulture, Vulture Records, oh, which, okay. was, which was, which was uh, his record label, uh, Alan's oh. record label, Vulture. Oh, oh right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the bass line there, you can see how that might be very sort of influential on you. And yeah, there's yeah. this Gallic. It's got that Gallic bottom end, you know, that yeah. lovely thumping, uh, yeah, that yeah, Daft yeah. Punk style, uh, Etienne de Cressy style, like Vulture style mm. kick drum. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. What a great record. Yeah, man. So, so it's how interesting that, that your, your entry points into dance music were so late. And so you, and maybe that's why, you know, you sounded so fresh when, because, you know, as the, as the, it's now a legend that, you know, you, you did this remix, you handed it in, with all of these other people. And I remember that Simeon, that Jas and James and all of those guys were on the road at the time and they were listening on a laptop. And that's why you didn't win the competition. I don't even know if you know this, but... but I, I heard that James, uh, James Ford said that it sounded like midi jazz to him <laughs> and I have to give him that it's kind of fun and kind of true you know what I mean <laughs> well I see I've talked to them about this at the time and and afterwards because I helped them with that competition you know I, I helped to get people to 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 do these remixes and stuff via the the radio 
And because they were listening on a laptop, they missed the whole bottom end of your remix. They just didn't, because you don't hear anything on a laptop. You only hear the top sort of third of it. Mm. So the only reason that you lost that remix competition was because they were listening on a laptop. But of course then... Who was it who got hold of it? Was it D- international DJ Gigolos? That no, first? it was Pedro. It was Pedro yeah, that it got was hold Ed of Bengal, it. Yeah. It was Ed Banger. Because I remember the first, the first, I first saw it crop up as a promo 12-inch single on international DJ Gigolos. Yeah, like Ed Banger signed it first, but he was like Pedro was starting his label and were the second uh, record to come out on the yeah. on the label. And uh, it was like working reasonably for a new label, you know, like, and uh, DJ Hell heard the track and re-released it on uh, Gigolo. Ah. And, and, and uh, this helped a lot to track. And this is also when we started to DJ because he had like um, a booking agency at Gigolo. And uh, so we signed there and we started like to DJ like uh, maybe like five days a week. So we played in the whole of Germany We're playing in like rave parties in caverns at like 9 a.m. <laughs> so like from nothing, we went like to the most extreme uh, club plans possible. Wow. So so that was a very swift process, was yeah, it? Yeah. From like never having DJed in a club before to then, wow, we're in some crazy place. And Yeah, yeah. Wow, I mean, that's it, interesting. How it, did Pedro, if you, cause if you didn't win that competition, how did Pedro get hold of it? Uh, because we met him during a dinner, like a, a very good friend of us that also designed our first uh, album covers and all the visuals at the time. He was already working for Pedro and, uh, and he, int- he introduced us to Pedro and, uh, and he said, ah, so I hear you guys are making music. And we're like, no, like we, we just made like a, a two tracks for the moment. <laughs> yeah. I said, oh, can I listen to them? So we played them, we played him like the tracks we had including uh, uh, Never Be Alone, we are friends. And we tell him, ah, but don't worry, like, we made that, but we can make better. Yeah. And he was like, no, no, it's cool, I take this one. <laughs> and, uh, and he played it, and at the beginning, it didn't really work. Yeah. It, it was okay, you know, but it didn't change our lives, and people were not going crazy when they were listening to this. Yeah. And it took like two, three years for the track to go onto the surface, mm. which is exactly the two, three years we had like, to train a bit like DJ making other music and everything. Mm. So finally, at the moment the track got noticed, we are also a bit more ready to do things. So it, it was a good timing. Trailblazers, Xavier Derone. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer Originals. Well, so there it is. Never Be Alone, which everyone knows as We Are Your Friends, of course. And it turned out to be like the anthem of the of the noughties. You know, it was like, it, it was, there are so many kids like at university around then and it's their favorite song you know and it, it, how interesting that you say that there was there was a three-year period yeah. where that was just it, it wasn't a hot record it was just kind of you know it just it came out and didn't really get noticed Mm-mm. um and and so what you what were you doing in those in those three years and what you were you, you'd been signed to ed banger in that three-year period so 
So yeah, we were doing remixes. Uh, we were like DJing a lot, mm. and uh, and it's fun, like because like the first time we met uh, DJ Hell, so mm. we played in Munich, and that was the first time we were playing out of France. And I think it was the second time of my life I was taking a plane. So we came like to the airport with Gaspard. We didn't know what to do or what to go, and we, had, we were carrying like a vinyl cases. Mm. And so we played this party, and it it like it was so good. And we're we're not like a, and we're playing with vinyl, so it was all very rough. But the audience was really into it, and uh, they were like doing mosh pits and everything. Was was kind of unusual at the time for like. At least it was not what we were expecting from like a DJ set, you know what I mean? Reaction. Mm. And uh, and at the end of the set, we played um, a track by Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. And uh, and that was like uh, hell next to us, like dancing, and we were saying like, <laughs> "What is this? It's like so good." And we're like, "Wow, DJ Hell like has never heard of Rage Against the Machine before." It was like a, it was a good memory, and from then. I think it's because uh, Hell saw us playing there that he put us in his like a booking agency. Right. So yeah, kind of fun. Yeah. Wow. Cause th- I mean, those were incredible days, and you were you were doing gigs with with Steph and Dave Sol from Solwax and with with Errol yeah. Alkin and and this scene was really like you kicked off a scene, man. You know, there were people were people were sort of. Um, I remember producers, kids that I was hanging around with, you know, and, and fader pushers and tweak heads, and they were they were abandoning the music as soon as they heard what you were doing. They kind of wanted everything to be to sound filthy and funky at the same time. Like it was there was a real scene, and to have that, it was it was a real, like I say, a grey area between dance and rock. You know, where you can play. Mm. Um, Rage Against the Machine mm. or, or, or anything that's like really like balls to the wall rock in a, in a dance set. Glory, mm. glory days. Very, very exciting. And, and then so I suppose you're, you're, you started to, to have a vision for your first proper artist album at that point, I guess. Not really. No? Not really, no, okay. because we're like uh, trying all sorts of things. And I take an occasion to to big up uh, Errol and uh, Solwax too because they like, they, um, they really like uh, mentored us like they really took us under their wing and were touring with them all the time mm. and uh, and it was great like they taught us like so many things and and I, th- I guess the way we uh, we were naturally inclined to DJ in a bit the same way but they really taught us how to do it well. Mm. So it was. It was very good. They were very well, especially for me, Dave, Steph, and Dave. So inspiring. Yeah, to, you know, it, there are no rules. You can play anything. You can mix anything together. You can just go for you know, and, go for it. And maybe even more uh, a role to a certain uh, uh, to a certain way, mm. because Dave and Steph has like this science of like making things uh, immediately efficient. Yeah. And Errol is like more like a, maybe in a way more, was more willing to take risks and was never afraid of like taking one hour to build up something that only gets people crazy at the last like a 10 yes, or 30 right. minutes, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, it's more of a techno thing that, yeah. that was happening with Dave it. Steph was like, they, they start on, a, and it's crazy from the beginning <laughs> to the yeah, end. Yeah. And Errol has always been for me more like a left wing in a way, you know what I mean? Like a, More dynamics. 
more than a mix, less tracks that you know, less bangers, you yeah, know. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, he would have yeah, played cool records, but then Errol knew when to drop a classic. Yeah. You know, he was really good at that. But both, yeah, both were amazing to us and, uh, and very, uh, very, um, yeah, we learned so many things with them. And, uh, and no, and at the time, because we started without a computer, we bought a computer. And this is when we started like, to understand what you can do with a computer that you would never be able to make with like uh, uh, analog stuff. Mm. And it was really important this and, um, and, and so to illustrate like this uh, thing, I, uh, I put like two tracks. Uh, one of them is by a French guy called uh, Jackson and his computer band. And yes. He was signed to Warp at the time. And this is a laptop music. And, uh, and the first time we heard it, we were really uh, shocked. You know what I mean? It's like, because it sounded like nothing we heard before and like very like uh, robotic, but very lively at the same time. Uh, uh, very romantic, but aggressive. And, uh, and the other one is uh, a prodigy track, actually, uh, from the uh, Always Outnumbered, uh, Never Outgun right, record. Right, right, That we loved. And that to me sounds a lot like uh, laptop music too. Which one? Uh, I, th I don't know if I put girls or uh, the way it is. Girls. And, uh, and it's fun because like, like afterwards, like a lot of people were, were uh, thinking, ah, so like this French scene, like where does it come from? Is it like from the French touch or whatever? But the truth is that uh, everybody who heard like uh, this Prodigy album at the time and Jackson, Like, if you put the two together, like, the addition, like, the math is quite simple because it sounds a lot like this, all, like, chopped up and aggressive and digital. And uh, and so, yeah, I think, that, like, for me, that those are, like, the two uh, touchstones of this of this period, you know? All right. So uh, let's first listen to... Uh, so it's Jackson. Yeah. Jackson and his computer band. All right. Let's, let's check that out. Trailblazers. Xavier Derone. Again, there's a real link that you can hear the link between that record and, and your style of making music. The Prodigy's Girls, less so. Mm. But, but of course, there is a, there's, a, there's a strong parallel between the Prodigy's live show and your live show, which we will come to, mm. which is it's shock and awe. Mm. It's lights and it's, it's rock. It's, it, it rocks every bit as much as, as any kind of metal rock gig. Mm. And it makes, gives you a sense of togetherness of like a, you know, of a rave. Mm. And that's a space that the prodigy have always occupied and that you occupy in your own stylish way. Mm. Well, I, I'd like to talk about the, the live side. So how about we do, quick listen to the prodigy um, cut and then, and then let's talk about Just East Live. Girls around the world. Trailblazers. Trailblazers. 
so that brings us to the to the live experience and really how you how you structure it, what you want to achieve, what's important to you when you play live. Just talk me through what what you're thinking about when when it comes to addressing the whole area of of, of representing what you do in a live context. Well, the thing is that we, with live, we um, okay. So at the time, we were like uh, DJing a lot. Yeah. And um, and there was like a huge, and there's still a huge difference between what we DJ when we DJ and the music we put out. Uh, because like even now when we DJ, we don't play so many of our tracks. We don't play so many things that sound like our tracks. And we just, we can play like everything, like from Gabber to like uh, 60s rock to like pop songs to rap. And... Um, and we felt okay maybe like it's time like to do something on stage that that is like we're thinking okay like i'm i'm putting it as i'm talking we're thinking of like people who came to see us because they heard like two or three tracks and uh and how lost they could be when they when they were hearing what we were DJing <laughs> so we were like okay let's let's make some live shows and that could be like a, a closer to our record and uh, and for us, like the the playing a live show is a good opportunity of um, like catching people's attention mm. uh, without necessarily making them dance. Mm-hmm. And and it's like we've always been very surprised by the reactions at our shows, or like or the memory people have of our shows, because it's. Like to us, it's not like that uh, rocking, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's very cold. Uh, like on, on we're just the two of us on stage, we're almost invisible on stage. Uh, the music is not that danceable. Uh, it can be kind of like, not abstract, but, uh, but we, we, uh, we play some tracks, for example, when we perform them live. We we play them in a way that people can't expect when it's gonna drop right. or when it's gonna stop. Right, right, right. And and everybody knows that the key to make people dance is that they can expect when it's gonna drop. I mean, like if you want a, a track to work in a club, you just have to organize it in a way that people can predict every move of the track, and that's how it works. Mm. And, uh, and we love to do that when we DJ. And the live, we know that people are not going to leave anyway. So we like to take this window, like to, uh, to try other things. So now we have like those three different poles of justice. Like there's the justice that make records that are definitely not uh, adapted to any sort of like public representation. We have like the DJ that is like party music and it's and it's cool it's fun and it goes a bit like in all directions right and the live shows that is another vision of our music uh, that is uh, inseparable from the visual aspect of it too and that is more like a global experience you're not gonna dance like for one hour and a half there will be moments but there yeah. also will be moments where you're just gonna like listen to the music and, uh, and look at it mm. and uh so yeah, like I would, I would say like the energy is very different, like from the prodigy, for example. Right, it's like completely the, almost the opposite in a, in a yeah, sense. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot more dynamics. You know, the prodigy is an incessant, massive rock rave thing going on, whereas there's so much 
chiaroscuro, the Italians say in, mm. in art. You know, there's so much light and dark. And actually, talk when you mentioned, you know, the unpredictable reactions that you would get from your crowd, I remember a particular reaction to... You were always very good at deconstructing your records when you played them live. So you'd play D-A-N-C-E, which we know as a, as, a, as a jaunty kind of dance track, but you deconstructed it to just a cappella. And the crowd went absolutely bananas. And, and it, all it was was an a cappella, your own a cappella. And you would rinse it for ages and ages and ages. And people would go like there'd be a riot. <laughs> oh, so maybe we had a technical issue on this day. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that could explain why. <laughs> but but for but for, but DNC is a good example because at the time we started touring, it was probably our most like uh, famous track, and we were playing it like very early at the beginning, and in a non-danceable way. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but just because we felt it felt good at this moment, and and too bad if uh, people don't really get what they want. Uh, and we still do like we always like play, play it very early. Yeah. Not because we want to get rid of it, but <laughs> but because it's like for us, like we we try to use every bit of like famous tracks we have to make the rest bearable. So we know that if we, <laughs> so, so we know that if we use the vocals of this track, yeah, then we can like it gives us like a window of like five minutes after that where we can put like more uh, difficult things. Yeah. Right. And it's okay, people are going to stay. And we do the same when we DJ, you know, like we, you play one track, everybody's happy. So, you know, like you have a small window to put like something impossible. Something really, yeah, really cool. <laughs> yeah, and then you take them back again. With, yeah. like, so, so we're talking about live and we're talking about this sort of audio-visual representation of you. Um, talk to me about the cross. Like, who, whose idea was, was that? Where did that come from? Uh, it was uh, it was Somi's ID, so like the, the friend I was talking about earlier. Right, the oh. design. Did you say yeah, like a designer, designer guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was our uh, flatmate at the time, and he introduced us to Pedro. And uh, and when we bought a computer, like the first track we made was uh, "Waters of Nazareth," mm. um, and it was it was crazy for us because like this is really like the result of uh, discovering something new, is that we were like um, making a track, and uh, and then I uh, we started like uh, isolated like the silence between the notes of the synthesizer we were playing. And because it was an analog synth, there was a lot of uh, static noise. And, uh, and we normalized it, so it became like, very loud. Mm. And then mm -hmm. we started like, uh, distorting it and, and just trying the plugins that were given with uh, Cubase, so that was the software. And, uh, and for the first time, we were able like, to cut things and to place them exactly like how we wanted to. And, uh, and, and so this track is really made from the static noise between like, a, a, like in a synth take for another track. Right. And uh, it's made from what some people would call silence. Yeah, that, yeah, no, that, it's that, I mean, that, that's, yeah. That's very John Cage. Yeah. <laughs> that is very John Cage. In a way. And, uh, and at the time, we were listening a lot to the uh, White Stripes. And, uh, and so the idea, for example, of having like the floor tom, like... Uh, Yeah. On the intro, like uh, on all the times. And also the idea that uh, things can sound like so crass, but it doesn't matter. Like if it's good, people are going to like it. Mm -hmm. 
And for example, like uh, I've always liked this band because of the of the aesthetic, more more than anything else, you know, like because it's like classic blues rock for most part of it, but because there was only like uh, drums and guitar, and there are just two of them, and they have to fill the space, like if it's a mm. big band. I have like a soft like a soft spot for like two people's band, <laughs> like Death from Above or uh, oh, yeah. All these kind of bands, and uh, and yes, yeah, so that's that's the magic of the computer. And and the the cross thing again, though. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. Just was Coming it the simplicity it. that appealed to you, the no, directness? Was, so we made this track. I didn't, I couldn't remember why I was talking about this track. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, and and so at the middle of the track, we put like some church organ, uh-huh. and because we wanted like this track to uh, to feel kind of bit of like uh, like. Christian, Gothic, something like this. Yeah. Uh, but in a positive way, not in a scary way. Mm-hmm. And the chords in this track are like very like, uh, not happy, but they have like, a, they, have, they have a lot of uh, um, emphasis, you know. Drama. Mm. Yeah, drama, like positive drama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we get this track and, uh, and uh, Somi started like to design the cover for this, uh, for this uh, track. And he he drew like a church organ because there was a church organ in it. Oh mm-hmm. right! Okay. And he made like a justice logo to sound a bit like a sorry half like a heavy metal band. Yes. <laughs> and 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 because the T is the letter in the center of justice, he just yeah. replaced the T with a cross. Okay. That and was a stroke of genius, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much. And what is fun is that we didn't feel like we had to keep this logo or this cross. So we just released this EP, and then for the release party, we built like a neon cross just to to have like something good to look at uh, for the for the party. And then we get rid of all of this, and we just continue our lives. We're doing a lot of remixes and everything. And then when we finished our first album, uh, we couldn't find uh, couldn't find an ID for the record sleeve, and we couldn't find a name for the album too. And we were in uh, Toronto. And uh, at some people, at people's place, and there was like a, a mantel piece, and they had a Dark Side of the Moon on the mantel piece, mm. and we were looking at the at the record cover, and we were like, yeah, like this is such a cool record cover. If only we had like a symbol or something <laughs> that is strong enough mm. that we don't have to put the name of the band or the title of the would album. Know that it yeah. Was you, yeah. And then we're like, yeah, but too bad we don't have that. So we get back to Paris, like continue right. with our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like weeks later, we thought, well, of course we can do it. <laughs> and we just have to put the cross that we used like two years ago on the, or three years ago on the record cover mm. of uh, Nazareth. Mm. And, um, that's that's quite interesting, and I've seen this before as well. You you have the solution, but you just don't really you, you just right don't in front yeah, of your you, nose. you just don't realise it, and then you maybe <laughs> you can spend a couple of years going, oh, I don't know what I don't. it was. It, always, it, it was there all the time, but always it's yeah, always the case. Isn't that no? funny? And you have to go on a bit of a journey to actually go. No, that's that's what it should be, you know. But it's and, so hard to think outside of the box and like in everything. Yeah. Yeah, man. And we're talking about like mixing a record. Yeah, you were in it. Like you're in it. And sometimes the solution is like you just have like to get rid of something, but you can't because you become so obsessed with like details that you mm. miss like the whole thing. And uh, and like I'm, I'm thinking of that because like when we're mixing the last album, the previous album, uh, there was one track that we couldn't mix 
because it was a demo and we we tried to record it like 15 times but it didn't sound as good as the demo so at some point we said okay we're gonna mix the demo yeah and it was impossible and it, it was at the end of the mixing and we called uh philip Zdar to help us mm. not for him to mix it but just to give us some advice mm. and uh and he came and he said yeah of course you just have like we use like the same bus compressors and because we made all the album like this it was like set on settings that were like kind of soft And say you just have to do that, and he just like pushed everything like to the max, and say okay, here it is. It sounds shit, but you get the idea. You just have like to stop uh, thinking that this is precious and that you have your settings and everything. And uh, and he was right, you know. Like sometimes you, you like the solution is so simple, but you try to find like many other ways, and it's, mm. you never find it. <laughs> yeah. So by now, your life must have really changed. You know, you weren't struggling artists, you know, in that three-year period. You've, you've now made it and you are toast of the town. You know, you, you, your, your life must have been in a very different place. Um, How were you feeling about it all? You know, were, were you, you, did you feel, you know, caught up in this? Because you, you were the toast of the town. I mean, you were like, you were the hottest things in the, in, in the world in, that, in, in dance music at that point. I, don't, I, I honestly, I don't know. Like, of course, we felt that uh, people were interested in what we were doing, uh, but at the same time, we never like uh, reached uh, mainstream success. Like, even our like the, the the we made some songs that a lot of people know, but they never charted. You know, we never like managed like a huge success. So we don't know. We don't really know what it is like to. Um, to be a pop star. So in a way, we, we didn't really feel a change in our lives. The, as uh, characters, we don't hide, but we don't uh, show up too much. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, we do it if it's necessary, but if, we, if it's not needed, we don't do it. Never had like huge tunes. Um, and also because of our, uh, and just on like, on a very pragmatical way, Uh, even when I was in school, we were working as graphic designers and we're already making a good living. Mm. So it's not like we make one hit, we receive like uh, 10 million pounds and, yeah. we, and all of a sudden we see our faces like everywhere on billboards. Yeah. Like there was like four years between our first single and our first album. Yeah. Uh, so all of that was very progressive and, uh, and at the end we're not so exposed. So... That's kind of good for longevity, though, isn't it? I think it is. I, th I think there's something really great about ha being respected, having success, but not being at that level where tabloid journalists are going to be sitting outside yeah. your house. And Yeah. And, and you say, you know, you were never pop stars, yet the last time I was at Glastonbury, you were in the head... I was... When the main stage, you know, in that main stage slot, I wasn't on the main stage. I was watching you headline one of the biggest stages at Glastonbury. Mm. You know, you were in the headline slot. That's a pop star slot. Mm. On the same stage where I probably saw Massive Attack like 20 years before, you know. Mm. Yeah, but we, we love our like uh, uh, position in the musical uh, landscape mm. uh, where we were able like to uh, reach a certain amount of people and operate at big scale without uh, having like the downside of it. And I'm thinking of the first downside is that you lose the freedom 
of trying things or like doing things that don't make sense. Mm. And we still have like this, uh, this freedom. Like there's, um, there's another band I love for that. Uh, that's called, uh, but that's called like everybody knows MGMT. Yes. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, and I, I really love their music. I really love like their uh, persona mm. and also like the, the position they occupy in music. Mm. Yeah. Like, like MGMT could have become like a Tame Impala, for example. Yes. Because it's really like a... Um, uh, Pop psychedelia thing. Trailblazed. Yeah, yeah. Like the yeah. way for this. Uh, but they are... Like, they make records on all records. They are always like great songs. They are always like the weirdest shit you mm. can imagine. And and it's it's cool. It's like a it's great position to have. You can make... And, and most of the bands I love... They are like this in the middle, like they mm. touch people at the same time. Uh, they are like completely free and they don't touch like so many people. So it's like you still feel you own it a bit, you know? Yeah, mm. I it's, get that. No, there's a there's a beauty in, in that positioning for sure. Should we play an MGMT song? Like anyone, yeah. Well, well, hold on, you, you have a Grammy, don't you, on your... Yeah. On your shelf at home that's MGMT related? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Like the first one we won was for uh, the remix of Electric Feel we did. Yeah. So we received like a request from the A&R of the company at the time that said, ah, do you want to, like, we have this new hot band. This is going to be huge. Do you want to make a remix? And and we already like quit more or less making remixes at the time. Mm. But we listened to it just to have an opinion and, and we liked it. So we say, uh, okay, but only if we choose the song. So we choose uh, Electric Feel. And, uh, and it's an amazing song, but the metric of it is like, I don't know how it's called. I think it's like 6-8. It's not like mm, a 4-4, four, yeah. four, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like the loop is like shorter. It's like six bars. And, uh, and at the same time, we met them. And they were like, ah, oh, we hope you're going to make something crazy to this track. Like crazy in their sense which means like something abstract that, you yeah. know, like that will lose people. <laughs> and all we did was just to put the track back on the 4-4 and changing the, song, the sounds a bit. But it's probably one of the less crazy, of the least crazy remixes we made because we love the song, so we didn't change it too much. We just like put it in a normal, like a regular metric. And, uh, and yeah, and it's crazy that we won a, a Grammy with this. But it's good, it felt good. <laughs> yeah, I bet it did. Let's, let's hear it. Let's do it. Trailblazers. Xavier Derone. completely forgot about the shit intro that we made when you receive like the stems for uh, remixes uh, sometimes and that was the case on this track you receive like all the separate like uh, split vocals yes and uh, and we did a couple of remixes like that where we take like the just one take of vocal or the worst one <laughs> and we put it like very upfront yeah and uh, and and we so we made the remix and we're like oh how about we make like a shit like the worst introduction possible to the track, <laughs> so we took like the worst part of Andrew like singing and and I think we also detuned it so it sounds like out of key 
<laughs> and put like the the shittiest MIDI sound. So when the track starts, then it just like takes all the space. Yeah. And, uh, and did you do that because they wanted you to do something crazy? And no, 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 we've already like uh, finished the remix when we met them, <laughs> but we didn't tell them that. Uh, so it's finished <laughs> and it's not crazy. <laughs> so so we we're starting to come closer to the modern to to current sort of life now you you settled in i guess to a a sort of role of 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 multiple albums and and your your career move forward do you have a, a a view that you will just sort of keep making records ongoing into the absolutely into the foreseeable future or do you see a, a point where you might go hey we've said what we have to say now it's it's an interesting thing some artists you know kind of just keep making great records ad infinitum and some don't i wonder how you how you view view your evolution as a as a as a as a band but that's the thing is but the, like the thing that we never know uh what will be next uh but just because we were like uh, graphic designers two minutes before we stopped being graphic designers to make music we know that things aren't always like you expect them to be. And, um, and also there's like, because finally we only made like three albums in the span of like 15 years. So there's so much time uh, happening between those records mm. that uh, we never know if like when we start to make another record, if we're going to like what, we do, what we're doing or if we feel we have something that sounds relevant to us to put on a, on a record. Uh, so far, so good. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and there are like a lot of things that we want to try, and uh, and now we are like starting again to get more into it. Uh, but also, like the process we have together is that we talk continuously, even like when we don't make music, like for two or three years, we talk about what we're gonna do, and we make like folders with like ideas, or we take notes or things we want to try. So, like, so far, it didn't happen that we come in the studio and we don't know what to do. It's like we look at each other, you know, in the eyes or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it didn't happen yet. Um, but I, that's the thing with, like, music, too. It's, like, it's a, a bit of a cruel world because, the, um, for example, you, you look at filmmakers, mm. like, the older they get, the better the movies are in mm-hmm. a lot of uh, ways. Mm-hmm. And with music, I don't have like so many examples of that. It's like, it's a, it's a so tooth. Mm. Or I don't know if you can say that. Like, I don't know of any musicians that has been like consistently relevant uh, throughout a career. Mm. Sometimes it's not relevant uh, just because it's not good. Sometimes it's because it doesn't uh, fit with uh, what people want to listen to at this time. Uh, sometimes you can come back to it like 20 years later and find out that actually it was good. Uh, so like we are very well ready for that and we already like in three albums we make things that uh, people like people don't like or whatever it goes it goes on like this Uh, which is obviously something that you've got to be completely at at peace with the fact that whatever you do not everybody's gonna like it right that's Uh, part of being an artist as well I, I feel isn't it accepting that Whatever we do here, there's going to be somebody slagging it off. Oh, it's not as good as this. Oh, I, I, you know, that's something that has to be, you know, accepted. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's a torture if you if you don't uh, understand that. But it, it's cool. We've been very lucky because the um, the three first tracks we put out, 
was uh, so never be alone uh, where are your friends uh, then uh, instead of like doing something like this we made a Waters of Nazareth that was just like distortion and something like uh, not friendly yeah and when people thought we would make an album of that we released DNC yeah. so we are already used with the fact that uh, there was a lot of people that were discontent yes anyway like even uh, like before dropping our first album There was already like some kind of like uh, discontentment about <laughs> what we are doing. That's interesting, yeah. And uh, and also we had like three ways of like uh, having a hype, and then it like crumbles because you don't deliver what uh, what has been wanted. And they were not. Mm. It's not like if any of these tracks would have been a huge success, because if it's like a million sellers, then it doesn't matter whether people like it or not or whatever, you know. But no, they were like uh, very confidential tracks, but never what people wanted from us. So at, at the moment we were releasing our first album, we were already like freed from the pressure of having to do something that makes sense. Right, right. Uh, and which was very good for like the, the 15 years after and even more, is that we still like do things uh, without taking into account whether it makes sense for people who liked what we did before or mm. not. Yeah, hence, hence the, the enormous difference between your first record and your second record. You were, you know, it's like you have liberty, don't you? You're, it, it, it's so liberating. Yeah. The space that you're in to do what you wanted to do. And uh, to do something a bit crazy. Yeah, and, and it's kind of fun because like the, um, we have like, like um, how do you say, requests like from artists that want mm. us to produce tracks for them. Yeah. In the modern way, so it's not like production really it's more like you make an instrumental and they sing on top of it mm. yep. and what is fun is that uh, they all have a different idea of what they want uh, some of them want it like disco because like uh, they know the disco tracks of us some of them want, want it like noisy some of them want it like EDM because they think we're an EDM band <laughs> some of mm. them want it like, uh, like sounding like 10 years ago but the common point they all have is that they always ask like something like uh, that we don't do any longer. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and at the end, it's like, a, um, like in 90% of the case, it's a mismatch. We just, we don't even have to work on the track with them now. Like, we think it's not, it's a, like a casting mistake. Do, do you have um, much of a desire to produce other artists' records? Only if it's interesting. Mm. Uh, we're not running after like uh, like having like big featurings or whatever and we tend to do the opposite actually when we make albums mm. uh, and same thing with like the, we live in a collaborative world uh, right now yeah but in a sense that doesn't does, just doesn't work for us uh, because it's like um We love collaboration when, uh, when I'm going to talk like Jean-Claude Van now, but when one plus one equals three, mm -hmm. but none, not when everybody loses his personality because you try to, you try to force something yeah. into something that might appeal to people because you think that you're going to get the market of this one and the market of this one. And there's, there's so much of that uh, philosophy, isn't there, yeah. present now in, in certainly in record label world where it's like we want you know three different artists in the uh you know in the artist credit because three is better than two and maybe four is better than three and 
sometimes it's like, oh, let's just think about, you know, the music being brilliant rather than that whole kind of stacked collaborative thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so not to answer your question, yeah. we're, we're not like mm. running after that. No. If it shows up and if we feel it's like it can be good, we, we give it a try, of course. Yep. But, uh, but otherwise, no. You've always really, there's always been a real momentum about you artistically. You've, you've always kept moving forwards and you're always doing what, not what people, you know, you don't, like you say, you don't care about what people want. You just, mm. you just kind of, you, you just kind of keep moving. That's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful place to be for an artist. I think that it, it's a, it must be very uh, satisfying as an artist to, to be in that position. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, we're very happy like this. And at the same time, it's not like a, a total rule because there are some bands I love and they kept on doing the same stuff like for like uh, all their career. I'm thinking for like uh, uh, ACDC, for example, mm, you, yeah. would be, you would be disappointed if it didn't sound like a, an old ACDC track, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. And, and they do it like brilliantly, like the strokes, same thing. Like, like they've been doing the same song for like 20 years, yeah. but the song is amazing. So I will, I will keep on buying their albums, <laughs> whatever they do. And uh, it depends on the type of bands. I, th- I think for every band or every artist, there's like a different scheme. Mm. The, I, I guess the only thing is that to be uh, happy with what you're doing and we find happiness in like uh, trying different things. Uh, but if we would like find happiness in doing always the same thing, we would probably do, and it wouldn't be a problem. Hmm. Tell us about what's going on now. You've you you've been working on a film, right? Yeah. So yeah, well, what's, and this is a film. It, it's a it's a live performance film. Is that right? Yeah, sort it's, of. It's, it's, but it's a controlled live like, performance. Yeah, the live performance is the was the excuse for us to make this film. That is very much like, uh, like, like what we wanted to do with this film was to put like the audience in a state that like, it's a stoner movie. I'm trying to find the good words. <laughs> it's I, a stoner I, movie. It's a stoner movie. Like we just want people like to, to watch this film. It's like very abstract. It's just like images. It's very beautiful. It's very slow. You do whatever you need to, and then you, you can just like indulge. It's like it's for us. It's like watching like a documentary about animals. You know what yeah. I mean? You watch like a one-hour documentary about like whales in the Antarctic. Yeah, and it's cool. You know, it doesn't say anything. You didn't learn anything new, but it was like such a good trip to have and to see this, and it's beautiful and 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 uh, and the, the the musical experience is an excuse for us to to make this film. And we are very happy with the result. It's like, uh, it's, it's, or it's like watching a lava lamp, you know what I mean? Mm, a lava or, lamp. Or an aquarium. It's like, it's really type of, of feeling. Really relaxing. To But it's you performing, it's your live music that is the soundtrack for this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like the other reason why we did this film is that we wanted to document our last tour. And we tried like so many times to film, film our shows, but it never looked the way we wanted it to look. Yeah. And uh, we wanted like to have a document of the live show that that is like uh, where the focus is the music and the visual and not the energy and not the interaction between the band and the audience. Yeah. Because a live show in, in a proper live show, like the audience makes like 50% at least of the show. Uh, but, but we, it, it didn't work for us. So we wanted to have something very like slow, cold and, uh, and beautiful and, uh, 
So yeah, we worked on that for one year. Uh, and now we're just trying things. Now we're like, we were back in the studio, we're making music uh, with no plan. We're just like, uh, we're doing things, trying things, listening to new, uh, new things, new way of making music. Yeah, and you, you talked about you, you, you're always like, making notes and like, I, I imagine like a mood board of pictures and things like that. You know, what, what, what are the, what are the, some of the moods and notes that are, that are informing where you are now? It can be anything. They are like words. So I have like notes on my phone with words. Uh, it can be images, sensations. Yeah. Uh, but it's most of the time about sensations and, and, and because we are very like uh, connected we when we talk about sensations we know it means the same thing to us so we talk about that and also about like uh, aesthetic in general and but the thing and i think we learned that from uh, graphic design is that any type of um, of aesthetic can be applied to another medium there's always there's always a way of translating an emotion or something uh into another media. I don't, I don't know if it's clear, but mm. yeah, uh, you can you can hear some music and make an image out of it. Absolutely, you can see an image and find a way of giving the same emotion with music, and uh, and it works with everything. It can be with furnitures, with people, with the way you feel when you see someone, mm. and stuff like this. So this is uh, the type of notes we have. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's before we ask you the last question, let's just play. Pick one song that you are r really proud of from your live set, from, from that film, to, from Iris, to, uh, to, to play now. Like, uh, uh, I love uh, Chorus on the, on the live set. And it's, uh, it's a nice example of the, of the gap that there is between uh, Justice Album and Justice Live. Uh, so Chorus on the album is like, kind of like, it's not prog track but it's it's it there's a drive it's like very melodic and mm. it's a bit like a, a hazy mm. and uh, and for the live version we got rid of everything we just kept two sounds and make and made like a industrial techno track there's like no music at all in it <laughs> it's just like a rhythm yeah and uh and and it was so good to play it live because Uh, it's one of the moments where people actually get to dance in the live show yeah. and when everything is like predictable, like things drop when you want them to drop. And, uh. There's your elegant deconstruction again. All right, <laughs> chorus, but the live version. Trailblazers, Xavier Derone. So the way that we round things off with everybody is that we put them into, uh, into this scenario where the earth is in danger, where aliens have come and they are, they are building some kind of like super highway and they are looking at, they're, they're, they're surveying this, this uh, neck of the, of the cosmic woods and they are deciding which planets in our solar system to, to destroy in order to make way for this. So uh, if those aliens come, what is the tune that you would play to them to make them stop? To, to make them think that we are worth saving. So it is the tune to save the world. 
It's high pressure shit, Xavier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the the tune I picked is um, it's with an edit, and I can't remember uh, if I made this edit or if I got it like uh, handed to me like this. Mm. Uh, it's not an edit. It's like it's a serves up by uh, Brian Wilson. Oh. But on the um, you know when you buy like the 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 whole record. Like the new edition of it mm-hmm. that was like released like 10 years ago, something like this. You had like the demo, the instrumental, like many different versions. And this is an edit that starts with a demo instrumental and that then goes into like the demo with vocals that he, he sang. So there's none of like the actual uh, studio version. And it works so well because it starts with like two minutes or so of like a very beautiful yet like a. Uh, yeah, it's just very beautiful music, and then it just like calms down, and then you have him like singing, and it's like the most, like for me, it's like the most beautiful song probably ever written, and this is like the ultimate version to listen to this song. So, so why is it going to stop? Why is this going to stop them from blowing up this planet? Because it's beautiful, and uh, and uh, so you're trying to appeal to them. In an emotional yeah, way. I that. mean, it's, it's either you play them that or you play them something like awful, so they run away. <laughs> because, you know what I mean? <laughs> we so, back so, to metal. So what, what do we do? Like, we, we try to... Be- I, beauty wins. I think beauty positi- wins. I think, yeah, I think positivity. Yeah. I think positivity has got to win. The force is always going to win over the dark side. Mm. So with that in mind, let's have the wonderful uh, Brian Wilson. Trailblazers. Xavier Derone. The diamond necklace played the pawn And it handsome drummed along Whoa, to a handsome man at A blind class aristocracy Back through the opera glass You see the pit and the pendulum It's been a fantastic opportunity to, to talk to you. Thank you so much, man. For well, uh, Thanks for coming to Paris. Well, we, we love it here and we, we look forward to, to seeing you wherever it is around. Are you going to be, is there going to be more live bits and pieces out and about? Yeah, what's on the horizon mm, for you? Mm, mm. No, no, no. Like we, we have this rule is that when we stop playing live, we don't play live anymore. Whatever is at stake. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, the, so after the last gig, we uh, dismantle everything. Right. So, and it's, it's a good thing. So like, even if like two weeks after somebody calls us, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I have like $10 million to play, like, we can't do it. <laughs> like we don't even have like to wonder, like, is it good? Is it bad or whatever? We just can't do it. So it's, okay. a, it's, a, it's a really steadfast rule. Until you're... Until there's like 20 millions right. on, on <laughs> okay. the line. And then we say like, okay, we're going to rebuild it. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, so that means is that just so that you don't get distracted, so that you can just get your head down and and concentrate on life and then on your next record. Yeah, but the thing is that it's so easy. Not so, it's not so easy, but it can be easy to tour forever mm. uh, if you're lucky. And it's difficult sometimes to say no to things because they bring you a certain sort of comfort or whatever. Mm. And then you look again, and it's been like ten years of been doing that. And, and, you, and you missed your kid growing up because you're a dad. Yeah, yeah. You miss this. You miss like just like normal life, and and you are sick and tired of like playing like every night or whatever. 
Yeah. And, 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 uh, and fortunately, there's a lot of people in that case. So now we decide. And at the beginning, we, put, we set this rule because we didn't want to become uh, alcoholics. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that okay. as well, actually. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, can be part of the... You get too much into that lifestyle, it can be a problem. Yeah, yeah totally. You mm. know, like we knew that, okay, we're going to set a limit date. Otherwise, we're going to get crazy. And also, like, when you tour in good conditions, you are completely, like, taken in charge of. Yes. Yeah. It's a bubble. And there's a risk of, like, uh, debilitation from that. You know what I mean? Like, we, we just, mm. like, try, like, to scan, like, all possibilities. Like, okay, maybe it's more reasonable that... We decide to stop at some point and we do it, whatever happens. That is very wise. That is oh, very yeah. wise, Xavier. It was lovely to see you again. Yeah. Great to see you in Paris. Yeah. Good luck. Same. And bon chance and, and, and happy, uh, and please send love to you, to Gaspar. And, uh, I will, I will. And I hope that, uh, I hope that, I can't wait to hear, you know, whenever, whenever the new stuff comes, man. Until then, We're you ready. enjoy, you enjoy your coffee and your croissant <laughs> tomorrow and your time in the studio and your time at home with your, with your family. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks man. Guys. Yeah. Catch you later. Cheers. Trailblazers. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.